0: Uh, Let's pray as we come to read from the book of Isaiah. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for the prophet Isaiah who spoke um, years and years ago, but spoke such truth, prophesied about Jesus Christ. And and Lord, we know that your word is powerful to speak to us today. And so, Lord, I pray as we read it and as I preach from Isaiah chapter 3 and 4, Lord, would you speak in power to our hearts. I do pray this morning, Lord, that you would bring conviction of sin in this room and that we would, we, we would turn to you in faith and ask for forgiveness and mercy once more. Lord, I, I pray also for um, inspiration and empowerment and, and a boldness in your power and your authority, Lord. I pray that there would be an emboldening in this room this morning for your glory. Um, and I, I pray most of all that um, as we read this word and as I preach it, each of us would find our refuge and our trust and our guide in you, Lord God. You would be the one we put all our trust in. Um, Would you come and do that in our hearts by the power of your Holy Spirit this morning? Come speak through me, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Let me start with some questions this morning. Who is your guide in life? What do you depend on for support when the storms of life come, where do you go to find refuge? Who is your guide? What do you depend on for support? Where do you go to find refuge? The reason I ask those questions is because as I've mentioned, we're continuing our sermon series in the book of Isaiah. And and two weeks ago, we had a one-week gap. Two weeks ago, I finished preaching on Isaiah chapter 2. And Isaiah chapter 2 finishes with verse 22, which says this, Stop trusting in mere humans who have but a breath in their nostrils. Why hold them in esteem? That's the NIV translation. Um, I'm I'm using the ESV this morning, but that's the NIV, NIV version of that verse. Stop trusting in mere humans who have but a breath in their nostrils. Why hold them in esteem? You see, the prophet Isaiah is prophesying to the people of Jerusalem, and he's seeing how these people in Jerusalem are acting. And he knows that the people in Jerusalem were supposed to be the people of God. They were supposed to follow God, to obey him. He was to be their guide through all of life. But instead, the people in Jerusalem are choosing to place their trust in men. They're following and obeying fallible, deceptive human beings. The people of Jerusalem were supposed to depend on God. He was supposed to be their support through all circumstances. But instead, the people of Jerusalem, in chapter 2, are depending on man-made things. They're depending on material wealth to get by. The people of Jerusalem were supposed to take refuge in God. He was to be their shelter and shield and strong high tower. But instead, these people in Jerusalem are seeking protection from men. They're trusting military strength and human Leadership. And the question is, how will God handle this people? What what will God do with the people of Jerusalem, who instead of Him being their guide, are following human beings? Instead of trusting in the Lord, they're trusting in human strength and power. And the answer in chapter three is actually terrifying judgment. The the chapter I'm about to read to you is a chapter about God's judgment on the people of Jerusalem. I think it's meant to be quite a scary passage of scripture. And um, so I'm going to read to you initially from Isaiah 3, 1 to 4, verse 1. And as I say, this is is about God's judgment. Isaiah chapter 3, verse 1 through to um, 4, verse 1. For behold, the Lord God of hosts is taking away from Jerusalem and from Judah support and supply all support of bread and all support of water, the mighty man and the soldier, the judge and the prophet, the diviner and the elder, the captain of 50 and the man of rank, the counsellor and the skilful magician and the expert in charms. And I will make boys their princes and infants shall rule over them. And the people will oppress one another, everyone his fellow and everyone his neighbour. The youth will be insolent to the elder and the despised to the honourable. For a man will take hold of his brother in the house of his father, saying, You have a cloak, you shall be our leader, and this heap of ruins shall be under your rule. In that day he will speak out, saying, I will not be a healer. In my house there is neither bread nor cloak. You shall not make me leader of the people. For Jerusalem has stumbled, and Judah has fallen, because their speech and their deeds are against the law, Lord, defying his glorious presence. For the look on their faces bears witness against them. They proclaim their sin like Sodom. They do not hide it. Woe to them, for they have brought evil on themselves. Tell the righteous that it shall be well with them, for they shall eat the fruit of their deeds. Woe to the wicked. It shall be ill with him, for what his hands have dealt out shall be done to him. My people, infants are their oppressors, and women rule over them. O my people, your guides mislead you and they have swallowed up the course of your paths. The Lord has taken his place to contend. He stands to judge peoples. The Lord will enter into judgment with the elders and princes of his people. It is you who have devoured the vineyard. The spoil of the poor is in your houses. What do you mean by crushing my people, by grinding the face of the poor, declares the Lord God of hosts? The Lord said, because the daughters of Zion are haughty and walk with outstretched necks, glancing wantonly with their eyes, mincing along as they go, tinkling with their feet, therefore the Lord will strike with a scab the heads of the daughters of Zion, and the Lord will lay bare their secret parts. In that day, the Lord will take away the finery of the anklets, the headbands and the crescents, the pendants, the bracelets and the scarves, the headdresses, the armlets, the sashes, the perfume boxes and the amulets, the signet rings and nose rings, the festal robes, the mantles, the cloaks and the handbags, the mirrors, the linen garments, the turbans and the veils. Instead of perfume, there will be rottenness. And instead of a belt, a rope. Instead of well-set hair, baldness. And instead of a rich robe, a skirt of sackcloth. And branding instead of beauty. Your men shall fall by the sword, and your mighty men in battle. And her gates shall lament and mourn, empty she shall sit on the ground. And seven women shall take hold of one man in that day, saying, We will eat our own bread and wear our own clothes, only let us be called by your name. Take away our reproach. One of the reasons we started this church, planted this church in Farum, is because we wanted, we've, we, we know that there needs to be a Bible-believing, Bible-preaching church in this town. And yes, this passage is difficult. Yes, this passage is uncomfortable. But we will not shy away from preaching the word of the Lord. We will not shy away from reading and preaching passages like this in Scripture because they're there for a reason and there's much we can learn from. And um, so... I don't make any apology for this morning's sermon. I'm preaching the word of the Lord. I'm preaching from that chapter, and it is an uncomfortable passage. I appreciate that. Um, When we get into the rest of chapter 4, there is something good coming. (laughs) So I haven't finished reading. There is something good coming, but um, chapter 3 is hard. It is hard. The the first thing I want you to see in that passage of Scripture, and I I hope it was obvious to you as I was reading it, It is God who acts in judgment in Isaiah chapter 3. In verse 1, the Lord is active. The Lord takes away, it says in verse 1. In verse 13, it says, The Lord has taken his place to contend. He stands to judge the peoples. In verse 14, the Lord will enter into judgment. In verse 17, the Lord will strike. In verse 18, again, the Lord will take away. If you read the history books it will tell you that it was the Babylonians who invaded Jerusalem, defeated Jerusalem, and, and, and they did do many of the things described in this passage. They did take away all the leaders from the land and, and, and take them back into exile in their own territory. They did leave the city of Jerusalem very hungry, lacking in food and in water. They, they did leave the city of Jerusalem in social disarray. It, the history books will tell you it was the Babylonians in 586 BC who conquered Jerusalem. But the Bible and especially Isaiah 3, could not be clearer. It was God who used the Babylonians as the instrument of his justice. God handed over the city of Jerusalem to the Babylonians. It it was God who was doing it through the Babylonians. It is God who judges Israel. It's God who judges Judah and Jerusalem in Isaiah chapter 3. And Isaiah uses a particular title of God at the start of this passage in verse 1, and again in verse 15. He says, the Lord God of hosts. If you've got a King James version, it says, the Lord, Lord of hosts. What Isaiah's done is he squashed two names of God together, that don't often go together. The, the, The second title is Lord of hosts, and you may have you may have heard that title because it's quite a fairly common one in the Bible. Um, Yahweh Sabaoth, Lord of Hosts. And if you think of a great host, maybe in Lord of the Rings, where there's a great army before a man, and he says, there's a great host before me. He's talking about an army of orcs or, I don't know, an army of elves in Lord of the Rings. But, so one of the, we use the word host to mean a great, massive army. Um, we also sometimes speak of the heavenly host, and, and sometimes we talk about host as, as in the host of the planets. If you look up into space, you see, see the great host. And so when the Bible uses the word host, it, it's evoking those images. And when we call God the Lord of hosts, we're saying God is Lord over heavenly armies. Imagine an angelic army, a great host. God is Lord over the angelic armies. He's also Lord over the earthly armies. He's Lord over the Babylonian army that's going to come and invade Jerusalem. So so God is Lord of heavenly armies. He's he's God of earthly armies. He's also God of the planets, God of the universe, God of the hosts up there as well. And and so when we describe God as the Lord of hosts, we're we're just declaring how mighty and powerful he is. In in some of the maybe... um, In the NIV, for example, instead of Lord of Hosts, it says Lord Almighty. Because if God is in charge of the heavenly armies and the earthly armies and all of the universe, he is almighty. All all power and might belong to him. So Isaiah uses Lord of Hosts. But before he says Lord of Hosts, he has another Lord on the front. So uh, in the Hebrew, this is what Isaiah says. He says, Adonai Yahweh Sabaoth. Lord, Lord of Hosts. And um, Isaiah uses that particular kind of combination of titles of God 12 times in the book of Isaiah, and that's more than the rest of the Bible put together. So if you read the rest of the Bible and you look for Lord, God, in capital letters of hosts, or Lord, Lord, in capital letters of hosts, um, you'll, you'll find that 12 times in the book of Isaiah, and you only find it seven times in the other books. So it's quite an unusual title for God, and, but it is one that Isaiah particularly likes. And I, I was chatting to you, um, Gareth about this sermon on Friday, we're having coffee together, and, um, and he said it's kind of like where nobles string lots of titles after their names. So imagine the Queen came this morning, and um, I said, oh, the Queen's come to church, isn't it fantastic, in a very polite way. Um, I think we'd be quite shocked, but I, do, I could just say, oh, the Queen has come, or I could say, the Queen, the head of the Commonwealth, the defender of the faith, is here, and you see what what that does by adding the extra titles after the Queen's name. It, it kind of emphasises her power and authority and who she is, and and I think we'd be pretty surprised anyway. But maybe adding those extra titles make us e- feel even more in awe of the fact that the Queen had just entered into the Ashcroft Arts Centre, into our into our church service. And so this is what Isaiah is doing. He's, he doesn't need to add the first Lord when he we talks of God, but he wants he wants to emphasise. He's saying, I'm. I'm talking about the Lord, Lord of hosts. I'm not just talking about the Lord, I'm not just talking about the Lord of hosts, I'm talking about the Lord, Lord of hosts. And so what we have here is an emphasis of God's power and authority. Isaiah is emphasizing God's power and might, and that's what Isaiah 3 is all about. God's power and might and authority as shown in his judgment upon the sin of Jerusalem. Isaiah 3 is primarily about God's ferocious power and authority. It's about his lordship, his double lordship. He uses the word lord twice. God demonstrates his awesome power and authority and lordship in righteous judgment against sin in this chapter. And I, I think that's quite helpful in some ways, to think of God as the Lord, Lord of Hosts. I, I think sometimes in our churches in the UK, there's an unhealthy balance in the emphasis. We can talk about God as loving, and merciful, and gracious, and kind, and compassionate, and caring, and God is all of those things. He absolutely is all those things, and we must preach those things. But I wonder how many times you've heard a sermon on the Lord, Lord of Hosts, and the righteous justice and judgment of God upon sin. I think there can be unhealthy balances in our prayer lives as well. You know, sometimes we pray like God is my pal, he's my mate, he's my bro, and we and um, that one uh, apparently people don't use that one, but um, <laughs> um, but we use those terms to express the friendliness and closeness of God. And again, that's helpful. God is God is close. God is he we used to be enemies of God, but by the blood of Jesus Christ, we've made friends. We are friends of God. We can use that term. It's right. But how often do you pray to God as the Lord, Lord of hosts? Have you ever, ever used Lord of hosts as the term that you address God with as you pray? I think there's an unhealthy balance in the way we think about sin sometimes as well. Oh, it's just a small little sin. God will forgive me. He's gracious. He's merciful. It's okay this time. I can can get a little bit drunk. I can be a little bit boastful today. I can join in the gossip at work. I can tell a little small lie. I can be impatient. It's okay. God is merciful. God is gracious. God is loving. Well, in those moments, we're defying the Lord, Lord of hosts. So so maybe that's all you need to hear this morning, actually. Maybe some of us just need to redress that balance in our lives a little bit and start to revere and worship God and recognize him as the Lord, Lord of hosts. So what is the Lord, Lord of hosts doing in Isaiah chapter 3? Well, the first thing he's doing is taking away. You can see that in verse 1. He's taking away support and supply. He's taking away all support of bread. He's taking away all support of water. He's taking away all the support. He's dealing with the, the sin of the people of Judah who have found their support and comfort in things other than God. And so how does God deal with them? He takes those things away. He takes their support away. He doesn't just take away their support, he also takes away all the leadership in the city of Jerusalem. The mighty man and the soldier, the military gone. The judge and the prophet, the diviner and the elder, the captain of 50, the man of rank, the counsellor, the magician, the expert in charms. Anyone, if any kind of position of leadership, whether it be a, a, a kind of um, societal leader or whether it be someone who was leading the people astray by their, by their religion or their magic or their charms, God removes them completely. God takes them away. God takes away all support and all leadership in the city of Jerusalem. He does that because the people in Jerusalem have put their trust in men rather than in God. And so what does God do? He takes those people they've put their trust in away. I urge each one of you this morning, let God be your guide. Let God be your support. Find refuge in God. Because if you don't, if you choose to put your trust in someone or something else, you will find either that that thing or that person will let you down at one stage in your life, or you will find that God will take it away. Put your trust in God. Let him be your guide. Let him be your support. Because you will find anything else in life, any, anyone else in life will either let you down, or God will take them away. It's away. But God is everlasting and eternal. He's the Lord, Lord of hosts. He will never let you down and He will always remain. So put your trust in Him who has all power and authority and who is everlasting and will never, ever let you down. So God removes all those things from Jerusalem in the first three verses of the chapter and society starts to disintegrate, doesn't it? In verse 5, people oppress one another. Uh, people are insolent to, one, insolent to one another. People despise each other. In verse 6, they're so desperate for, to find someone to lead the people that they find someone with a cloak, and they think, because he has a cloak, he's going to be a great leader. Like That's what, um, that's what yeah, allows this person to be a great leader. That's how desperate they are. Oh, wow, you've got a cloak. You come and lead the people. Society completely falls apart. The, 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 the people cannot cope with, with the judgment that God has brought upon them. And the big question is why? Why has, why has God acted like this towards Jerusalem? Well, verse 8 spells out the answer. For Jerusalem has stumbled and Judah has fallen, because their speech and their deeds are against the Lord, defying his glorious presence. God is punishing the people of Jerusalem because of their words and deeds which have opposed God. And there's two things I'd like to draw out from verse 8. And the first is this. Societal breakdown in Jerusalem is caused by relational breakdown between God and the people. The reason society falls apart is because people have committed uh, have committed deeds and said words that have opposed god so what happens first is the rejection and opposition to god and then as a consequence god brings judgment and the society starts to fall apart so societal breakdown is caused by relational breakdown between god and man and that's very very important for us as a church we we live in in a, a really nice town, actually. Fairham's a wonderful, wonderful place. But as Chris Kilby spoke about last week, that there are things wrong in this town. There are ways in which society is not the way it should be. There are injustices in our town. I think he said there were 2,000 children living in poverty in our town right now. That is not right. That is not good. That is a breakdown of society. And we want to be a church who loves society, who heal society, who restore society. I would love it if Chris Kilby would come back in five years and go, there are now no children in poverty in this town because of the work that we've done in this church. What an amazing vision, what an amazing testimony of the love of God that would be. I do want us to be active in social action as a church, and as we grow, we'll find avenues to do that. And that is very, very important to us as a church. But restoring society will never be our primary objective because our primary objective is to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ and restore people's relationship with God because that's the root cause of the problem. If, if you want a perfect society in Fairham, then we need people to have a restored relationship with God. And so that's our primary aim, is to preach the gospel to people, that they would have their lives transformed and then go out into the world and live life as Christians in the love of God. And through that, society will be transformed in an amazing way. So we're not, we're not going to neglect social action. That's not what I'm saying. But I'm saying as we go and do social action, as we go and, and try and heal people's lives and bring restoration, our primary objective is that they would meet with the living God, that they would believe in Jesus Christ, have their sins forgiven and enter into eternal life, because that's the root cause of the problem. That's the first thing I want to point out. Societal breakdown is caused by relational breakdown between God and man. You want to transform this town, transform people's lives by introducing them and telling them of Jesus Christ, introducing them to Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. The second thing I want to show you from that verse is it's God's intention that the people of Jerusalem and us would enjoy his glorious presence. Do you, do you see that in the verse? It's, it's actually our words and our deeds that oppose God and defy his glorious presence. And so the implication of that is that God wants us to enjoy his glorious presence. God wants to grant his glorious presence. That's what God has done to the people of Jerusalem. He's come and He's come and blessed them and, and loved them and cared for them. They have enjoyed his glorious presence. And then the people of Jerusalem have turned around and defied God and opposed him with their words and their deeds. And as a consequence, they have pushed away. The presence of, the, of God. That's true of us as well, by the way. God wants us to enjoy His presence in our lives. And by our sins, by our words and deeds, we have defied Him and opposed Him. God's anger and wrath against sin actually flows from love. God wants a wonderful life for each and every one of us. He, he wants us to enjoy His glorious presence, life in the glorious presence of the Creator God. And so when we sin, when when our deeds and words defy God, when we reject and oppose God's glorious presence by the things we do, that, because God loves us, evokes anger in God. And that's why God is angry at sin and wrathful against all evil in the world. Imagine a, a father and a son, and the father loves the son wants to spend so much time with him, just wants to enjoy being in his presence and his son enjoying his presence. But the son, in response, opposes the father, disobeys him, pushes him away, defies him, defies the presence of his father. Can you, the, the father must be agonizing. I love my son. I want him to enjoy my presence. I want to spend time with him. And yet he keeps defying me and pushing me away and disobeying me. And, and so a, a just father would be angry at that behavior in his son. And that's exactly what goes on in the heart of God. He loves us and therefore he is angry at sin. He wants us to enjoy his glorious presence and therefore when our sins push him away, defy him and oppose him, he is angry at sin. God's wrath flows from his love for us. Now there are, there are two sins in particular that are mentioned in the, in the rest of the passage which I'm going to go through slightly faster. Um, So firstly, in verses 14 and 15, God says to the people of Jerusalem, you're crushing the people, you're grinding the face of the poor, You're you're filling your houses with the spoil of the poor. I wonder, in our age of consumption and greed, is it worth considering whether our possessions, the things that we buy, crush the poor, whether our house is full of the spoils of the poor. Are the things we buy ethically, ethically bought, or have we crushed the faces of the poor by the way we buy and spend our money? Now, that's one sin of the people of Jerusalem. I talked about that two weeks ago in a little bit more detail. Um, yeah, these, these people in Jerusalem have not treated the poor well, and by doing that, they have defied God. And in verse 16, the second sin that God speaks of here is haughtiness. Living life with an arrogance and superiority, especially in regard to possessions. I hope you can see that in the verses. And verses 16 to 23, God speaks a lot about wealth and possessions because the people of Jerusalem have been haughty and proud and arrogant and superior, especially expressed in their appearance and the things that they own. Maybe God's challenge to you today is to examine your heart and life for an attitude of superiority over others, maybe over the poor in particular. Um, You are living a haughty life in in pride and and feel that you're better than other people. So the sin of crushing the poor and, and the sin of haughtiness, of pride and arrogance. And so in chapter 3, as we've read, God's wrath falls upon Jerusalem, society falls apart, all leadership is removed, all wealth is removed, all food and water is taken away, women are living in shame in the second half of that chapter, and in 4 verse 1. And then, in that arid wilderness of that awful, terrible society it must have been at this point, when the judgment of God has fallen upon Jerusalem, Something beautiful gross. Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 4. And I'm going to read verses 2 to 6. In the midst of God's wrath falling upon Jerusalem in a city lying in desolation, society ruined, this happens. In that day, the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious and the fruit of the land shall be the pride and honor of the survivors of israel and he who is left in zion and remains in jerusalem will be called holy everyone who has been recorded for life in jerusalem when the lord shall have washed away the filth of the daughters of zion and cleansed the bloodstains of jerusalem from its midst by a spirit of judgment and by a spirit of burning Then the Lord will create over the whole site of Mount Zion and over her assemblies a cloud by day and smoke and the shining of a flaming fire by night. For over all the glory there will be a canopy. There will be a booth for shade by day from the heat and for refuge and a shelter from the storm and rain. In the midst of terrible judgment, societal breakdown. I can't imagine living in Jerusalem during this period. It must have been truly very difficult. In the midst of that, a beautiful branch of the Lord grows. The branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious. The branch described in Isaiah 4.2 is Jesus Christ, the Messiah. Jeremiah 23 verse 5 says this, Behold, the days are coming declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch and he will reign as king and act wisely and do justice and righteousness in the land. In his days Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely and this is his name by which he will be called the Lord our righteousness. That Jeremiah 23.5 is a messianic passage to, to talking about the Messiah who is coming. And what God is saying is, yes, there will be judgment upon the people of Jerusalem because Israel, the nation, have failed. They have sinned. They have disobeyed my commands. And, and so there will be punishment because I'm a just God. I'm a good God who does punish sin. And so justice will come. Judgment will come upon the, the city of Jerusalem, upon Judah, and upon Israel. But After that judgment has come, there will come one who is going to bring redemption and salvation for the people of Jerusalem, for the people of Judah, for the people of all Israel, for the people of Pharaoh, for the people of this country in the UK. The the righteous branch, the righteous branch from David, uh, uh, the beautiful branch. In Isaiah 4, verse 2, will come Jesus Christ, and he will come to rescue society. He will come to rescue all who would put their trust in Jesus Christ. It's an amazingly beautiful moment in the midst of a dark and distressing prophecy when the branch of the Lord comes in the midst of this difficult circumstance. In the city where the people defied the glorious presence of God by their words and deeds, um, There will be a canopy of glory in verse 5. Do you see that? Not only will Jesus come and rescue people, but in the city where people have defied God by their words and deeds, God's going to do something amazing. There will be a canopy of glory in Jerusalem, verse 5. There's a cloud by day and a fire by night, also described in 4, verse 5. And those are references to the way God shows his presence amongst the Israelite people. So when, when the Israelites were in the wilderness, in the desert, God led them by a pillar of fire in, in the night and by a cloud during the day. And so what God is saying in, in verse 5 is, in that place where you have defied my glorious presence, I will dwell with you in the city of Jerusalem by cloud and by fire. And so this, this passage in, in Isaiah 4 is, is beautiful, it's glorious. The, peop- the people will live in the presence of God forever and ever under a righteous king, the righteous branch, Jesus Christ, who has come for the salvation of sinners. And so I want to I bring three short reflections from Isaiah chapter 4. The first is this. Put your faith in Jesus Christ. If you, like me, need refuge and shelter in your life. Find it in Jesus Christ, the beautiful branch of the Lord. If you, like me, know you have sinned, if you're reading through Isaiah 3 and you're thinking, you know what, in many ways I have not treated the poor well. In many ways I have been proud. In many ways I haven't let God be my guide. I haven't gone to him for support and help in times of need. If you, like me, would consider yourself someone who has done wrong, Find shelter in Jesus Christ. Put your faith in Jesus Christ. If you believe in the life of Jesus and the death of Jesus upon the cross for the forgiveness of sins and the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead for eternal life and the ascension of Jesus Christ into heaven where he reigns as Lord over all of the heaven and earth. If you believe in Jesus Christ, that's what it means to take refuge under the beautiful branch of the Lord described in Isaiah chapter 4. And there you will find refuge and shelter from the judgment of God. His judgment will pass over you. You will not, be, you will not come under the judgment of the Lord because God's judgment fell on Christ. That's why he died. He died on your behalf. God's judgment came on Christ, that God's judgment might pass over you, that you might be blameless in the sight of God. So if you're reading Isaiah 3 going, wow, God's judgment sounds scary, find refuge in faith in Jesus Christ. He is your Lord and Savior. Do not put your trust in man, but find support and security in Jesus Christ. It's my first reflection on Isaiah chapter 4. Secondly, it is God's business bringing beauty out of ugliness in Isaiah chapter 4. Time and time again, we see in the Bible human beings mess stuff up. They disobey God. They, they do things that are unhelpful and wrong and, and not honoring to God. And, and so things kind of descend into a darkness and difficulty. And in those moments... God enters in and brings beauty in the face of ugliness. I'm I'm reading um, the book of Judges at the moment, and if you read the book of Judges, it's a story of people disobeying God, disobeying God, disobeying God, things getting worse and worse and worse, and then God raises up a judge who comes and does the work of God, and God saves them and lifts them back up again. It's amazing things, and then human beings fall back into this spiral of disobeying God and things going wrong again and then God raises up another judge and the judge rescues them from their oppressors and that is the nature of God he brings beauty in ugly situations in difficult situations so if you're here this morning and you're thinking my situation is dark my situation is difficult have faith in God that he is one who brings beauty even in the ugliest and most difficult of circumstances trust God, trust that he, he, that is part of his character, and come to him, turn to him in prayer. Um, actually, I wasn't going to say this, but I, re- I really want to talk um, briefly about prayer. Turn to God in prayer, um, because he is one who brings beauty in ugly circumstances. Um, this passage, lots of this passage is about the pride of man, about haughtiness, and about trusting man rather than trusting God. And where there is pride, there is prayerlessness. Where there is pride, there is prayerlessness because prayer, prayer is expressing you, you depend on God. When you don't pray, you're saying, I don't need God, I can do things without him. When you pray, you're saying, I need, I'm dependent upon God. And, and so if you want to break, break pride in your life, go to God in prayer in everything. If you've got struggles at work, pray. Lift them up to God and say, help me, Lord. If you've got, if you want to pray, If you want your family to thrive and do well, are you praying for them? Are you prayerful for your family, for your friends and your family? Are you prayerful for this church? It would be a very sad state of affairs if we were to plant this church and many of us were to work extremely hard, and I'm so thankful to so many of you who are serving really well, and it it would be very sad if we were to work, 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 really, really hard, wearing ourselves out, trying to grow the church, trying to do the things of the Lord, and we never thought, actually we're dependent upon God we need to pray about this and not just in our prayer meetings but you individually are you prayerful for your church because if, if you're if you're trying to serve in this church and you're doing it without prayer then you're doing it proudly and arrogantly and in haughtiness and I, I would just encourage you turn to God in prayer and rely on him he is your support he is your help in all that you do are you proud or are you prayerful um, kind of an aside, but yeah, let's be prayerful. Let's be prayerful because God brings beauty in the face of ugliness. And thirdly and finally, I think what comes through beautifully in Isaiah 4 is the presence of God. I've already spoken about the cloud and the fire that symbolize God being with the people in the city of Jerusalem. And so I want to encourage us to really hunger and thirst after God's presence in all of our lives. I was reflecting on, on the start of chapter 3 where God takes away the food and the water and thinking, wow, they, must, they would have been really hungry. The, food, the bread and the water is gone. That must have been awful. But I wonder what would have happened if in that moment, instead of hungering first after bread and water, they hungered first for the presence of the Lord. We are to be people who, who first seek God. Above all things, even food, we should seek the Lord for he is the giver of life. He is the provider of food. I want to encourage us as a church to be hungry, for God's presence in our lives, to, to desire God over anything else. I wonder when you leave church today, what's going to be your first thought? Lunch? Or is it going to be, i just want, I just hungry and thirsty for God's presence in my life. When you go through life, are you hungry and thirsty for God in all that you do? I've, I've, we've covered a lot of ground in Isaiah 3, uh, Isaiah 3 and 4. Um, So as I draw to a close, let me just remind you of some of the things this passage has taught us. It's taught us that God is the Lord, Lord of hosts, and he is righteous and powerful and mighty to act in judgment against sin. We've been challenged to lean only into God for everything else. All other things will let you down, but God will remain secure. He is a steadfast rock for you to trust in. But most importantly... I want to encourage us to take refuge in Christ, to to sit in the shade of the righteous, beautiful branch of the Lord in Isaiah chapter 4, to to find refuge in Christ, believe in him, your sins will be forgiven, the, the righteous judgment of God will pass over you, and you will live in forgiveness and joy and love and enter into eternal life in the new heavens and the new earth, where this city of Jerusalem will finally be established on the earth. finally i want to encourage us to hunger and thirst after god in all of life and in everything we do Uh, so we're going to finish by singing um, to god simon's going to come and lead us let's stand i'm going to pray for us and then hand over to to simon let's pray lord lord of hosts almighty powerful god One to whom belongs all power and authority in heaven and on earth. We come into your presence with reverence, worshipping you, respecting you, glorifying you for your awesome power and might. The heavenly armies belong to you. The earthly armies submit to you. The heavenly host, the planets, and all the universe are yours, Lord God. You are the Lord of hosts. You're not just the Lord of hosts, though. You're the Lord, Adonai, Lord, Lord of hosts. And, and so we do worship you and revere you. I pray you correct things in our hearts where um, we need to just revere you more for your awesome power and might. Lord, I thank you that because you're so powerful and so mighty, you are a sure foundation, one in whom we can take re- refuge, one whom we can always trust. And, and And Lord, I pray we would. May you you fix our hearts and eyes upon you, Lord, as the ultimate foundation and support through all things. Lord, I pray um, you would convict our hearts where where we may be crushing the poor, treating the poor unfairly, where there's pride in our hearts. Would you transform us? Would you fill us with the Holy Spirit? Give us a spirit of humility to treat and love others as you you treat and love them. And finally, Lord, I pray we would hunger and thirst after your presence. Come, Holy Spirit, in this time now, Lord God, may we enjoy your presence, and may it be such a wonderful experience tasting and seeing that you are good, that we would just hunger and thirst for more of you in all of our lives. Thank you that you're with us always by your Holy Spirit, but would we truly hunger and thirst for you in all, everything we do, for for to be with you, Lord, is the greatest thing. one day in your courts, Lord, is better than a thousand anywhere else. And may we have that hunger and thirst for your presence and your life. And we, uh, Lord, we thank you so much for the righteous and beautiful branch that grew out of turmoil and difficulty in the city of Jerusalem. We thank you for Jesus Christ, our Lord and Saviour, one who lived perfectly, one who died a sinner's death despite being completely blameless of any kind of sin i thank you for jesus that he died on our behalf that we might be forgiven for the things we've done wrong and so lord once more now in our hearts we come and put our faith in you we take refuge under the righteous branch we we take refuge under the beautiful branch and we know that there we are safe in christ believing in christ trusting in jesus there is safety from all things there is life eternal there is blessing there is what a wonderful wonderful place to be in your presence in under the beautiful branch of the Lord. Thank you so much, Lord, for Jesus Christ, our Lord and Saviour. We, we praise and glorify you for him. And we thank you for him with all that we are, and we hunger and thirst after you. Let's sing.